Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, August 6th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news, and also I'll be playing my interview with Hobbs and Shaw writer-producer Chris Morgan. Joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film managing editor Jacob Hall. Oh, hello, hello. Weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And my name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com. So guys, let's just jump into the news. We have a lot to cover before we get to the Chris Morgan interview. Uh, And let's start with the Bruce Lee fight in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I suppose we should give maybe like a loose, like a vague spoiler warning for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for those who haven't seen that yet. So if you want to just skip ahead several minutes to our next item, feel free to do that if you have not seen the film. Uh, but Brad, tell us about that fight and uh, the way that it almost could have ended. Yeah, so uh, it, we've seen this, uh, if you even haven't seen the movie, there's this scene from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that is uh, teased where Brad Pitt's character Cliff uh, shares a scene with Bruce Lee, who is played by Mike Moe. And in the actual movie, the way this plays out is it's kind of a confrontational scene where Brad Pitt's character mouths off a little bit to Bruce Lee while Bruce Lee is kind of uh, arrogantly bragging about how uh, tough he is and how nobody can beat him in a fight and that he could even uh, beat Cassius Clay uh, in a fight if he wanted to. And the scene has stirred up a little bit of controversy because uh, Asian-American audiences have thought that it kind of paints Bruce Lee in a negative light, kind of makes him look a little bit uh, more foolish and uh, kind of like a bit of a dick. And even though plenty of people have said Bruce Lee was kind of arrogant, they they think that this scene goes too far. Um, But the uh, original scene actually would have made things a little bit worse because uh, while we see Cliff and Bruce Lee go back and forth twice during this scene, there would have been a third round, if you will, where Cliff would have actually taken a little bit more of a cheap shot at Bruce and actually knocked him on his ass, which was kind of what the goal of the fight was to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that it would have, that would have made Bruce Lee look even uh, more like a chump, you know, by losing a fight to Cliff. Um, but the, this information comes from uh, Robert Alonzo, who was a stunt co- coordinator on the film. And he does uh, go out of his way to point out that the, the idea of the scene 
rather than making Bruce Lee look like a fool, was to more so explain to the audience the level at which Cliff was operating, uh, which is something that a lot of people have talked about in that this scene is meant to illustrate that Cliff is a tough guy. Uh, we know he can do stunts, but it's meant to show that he can also fight and he can hold his own against somebody uh, even like Bruce Lee, which gives us a sense of believability as to why he's able to easily dispatch with the Charles Manson murderers at the end of the movie. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely something to uh, discuss. You know, it's there's a lot of interpretations about this scene. Uh, some people are you know have been upset about it, including. Bruce Lee's family, and there's, uh, you know, good reasons on both sides as far as, uh, you know, defending and reacting to this scene. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you guys think about this scene? Jacob, what do you think? Well, I was not on the spoiler episode, and I'm hesitant to weigh in because I, I am a white man, and I have been listening to Asian writers who have very different readings and interpretations on this scene. I do think that the version of the movie is certainly better than the one that was planned out and, and originally, so that was a wise choice. But I've heard convincing arguments in favor of this scene and against it from writers of, of backgrounds who are more important uh, and more relevant to this than I am. I personally like the scene, and uh, I, but I'm also not going to say I'm a definitive voice here. But I'm very, very glad that this original version got changed on the set because that just would have opened the can of worms even more. Yeah, but I think, we like we oh, like to point out too too that even though obviously we're three white guys on the slash film staff discussing this, um, our our own HT did write up, write this up and offered her own uh, perspective on this scene, you know, to to give us a little bit more proper context and idea of you know what this means to uh, Asian American audiences. And yeah. she did not like this scene. Uh, if you read her article, she's very um, hesitant to praise it in just about any way. So uh, take that. Uh, I think you should go read her article if you want to hear a more nuanced perspective from someone who actually has skin in this game yeah for sure and i'll link that in the show notes um speaking of once upon a time in hollywood i wanted to uh read a few emails that we got in feedback uh, or as feedback to our spoiler conversation um I, I guess a couple of these involve some more details from the movie so i i suppose i should throw like a full spoiler warning on this um so again just fast forward just a, a couple minutes um if you don't want to hear what's going on but kevin h says could tarantino be making a connection about uh, his relationship with harvey weinstein with the character of cliff saying that everything i saw said he was a good person so why would i think he intentionally killed his wife or in the case of Weinstein, was a horrible sexual predator. Um, I didn't think about Harvey Weinstein once when I was watching this movie, but this is kind of an interesting thing. I, I had not considered that as like a, uh, I don't know, sort of like a low-key statement on the, the whole Weinstein thing. Um, and Tarantino has not really said very much recently about his relationship with, a uh, working relationship with Weinstein, other than just like... Um, well, I'll just leave it at that. He hasn't said very much about it on on the record, anyway. So, uh, what do you guys think about this? Did do you think did you guys make any sort of Har Harvey Weinstein connections at all when you were watching this movie? I don't think there's a direct connection, but I do think that the fact that Tarantino is making a love letter to this almost squeaky clean Hollywood where everybody not really gets along but exists in this harmony that never actually existed is feels very much like a guy whose world has been turned upside down. Uh, so we can argue all day about what Tarantino knew or didn't know, but I, I can't think it's an accident that post Weinstein scandal, he makes a movie about the good old days um, where, you know, legends made movies and they had incredible lives. Uh, as false as that is, I feel like 
to daydream from somebody who wishes things were simpler. Yeah, that's that's probably fair enough. Brad, did you think about Weinstein at all during this movie? No, that really didn't come up for me at all. But I do think that that is a very interesting interpretation of uh, that particular fragment of Cliff's story. Yeah, and speaking of Cliff, um, you know, there's that scene where he's sitting on the boat with his wife, and and it's left ambiguous as to whether or not he kills her. And Aaron S. wrote in, I'm not going to read the the email word, word for word, but basically suggesting that Cliff's harpoon gun that he sort of had precariously positioned on his lap, sort of pointing at his wife, may not have been loaded. And I... The, the way that Aaron described it was basically like looking down the barrel of the gun and just seeing essentially like an empty circle. And I, I tried to do some Google image searching, and I, I remember the movie that way as well, like seeing basically an empty circle at the end of the, the gun's barrel. And I tried to do some Google searching and saw like a lot of uh, harpoon guns and spear guns and stuff like that actually have like pointy spears like uh, protruding from the end of the gun um, when it's in its loaded state. So I'm not sure if like maybe this was a specific type of model that like, uh, <laughs> you know, where the spear was on the inside of the barrel or something like that. But um, I don't know, that, that could be one more uh, subtle hint uh, as to how we're supposed to interpret this scene. I didn't really um, think much more about that, but I'm, I'm thankful to Aaron S for pointing that out. Uh, and, and if anybody is like a, you know, if anybody uses har- harpoon guns or spear guns regularly and maybe even knows some about the history of like, uh, you know, models from the 1960s or something, feel free to, to email us at peter at slashfilm.com and let us know what you think or about that. Or just reach out on Twitter with the hashtag, I am a harpoon expert and we will listen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and then David P uh, has a, a, a reading as well. He said, during the spawn uh, ranch cliff sequence, uh, one half-baked idea that just came to mind is, and he mimes hitting a joint here, and he says, Sleepy George Spawn represents the Academy, and Cliff represents stunt workers and how they're not recognized, man. These rich execs and producers and directors made their money off the backs of these hard workers only to leave them behind as a footnote, man. So I appreciate the uh, the Lebowski-esque uh, writing of that particular email. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm sure... People have, I don't know, I, I didn't really think about this in terms of, like, the Oscars as well. I guess people were just thinking about this movie on all these different levels that I was not considering it when I watched it. But um, I could easily see that argument as being something that was on Tarantino's mind. Um, you know, it's clear he has, like, a reverence for stunt workers and, and um, you know, especially with the character of Cliff. Like, it, even as complicated and, and ambiguous as his backstory is, it's clear that he that Tarantino respects the work that goes into uh, his profession. So um, I thought that was interesting too. And then one more, uh, Sonic W says, I have a different take on the movie's ending. I believe Tarantino is taking a jab at all those critics who say his movies are too violent. If you remember in the car before setting out for the murder, there was a diatribe by one of the girls about TV violence and how it hit, it has affected its viewers. Uh, Bounty Law was one of those shows and it is... Uh, that's who the three should go after, talking about uh, Rick Dalton, DiCaprio's character there. Uh, in the end, it was violence that saves the day. Tarantino purposefully waited until the ending to unleash his violence, save the day, and give his critics a take-that moment. Um, what did you guys? What do you guys make of that, the idea that Tarantino was like basically saving the violence for the end as a way to use it as like a... Um, a saving grace for for the movie in a way is like his main tool to establish that or, or execute and and pull off this sort of um, cathartic ending that he was 
that he was building toward. Do you think that there's anything to the idea that he was doing this as like a a statement on violence at large? I don't. I don't. It's not the way I read it, but I I do think that Tarantino framing the violence as being incredibly brutal, uh, but framing it in a way that it's a uh, cheerworthy turning. The level of violence against these murderers, you know, uh, that we would have seen applied in the opposite direction and making it into like the stab and applaud moment is very cheeky because we were all prepared for a brutal conclusion, but we were prepared for something horrifying. So we get something that was, you know, for lack of a better word, exciting. So I, it's certainly no accident and certainly a, 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 a cheeky choice to have it all come at the very end like that after a movie that's relatively violence free up to that point. Uh, but I'm not sure if it's meant to be a jab with the critics. But you know what? Uh, this movie has enough going on that I'm, I'm willing to entertain this as something to be discussed. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if anything, I would say maybe that the that scene in the car is more so about uh, thinking about how ludicrous the idea is that simply seeing violence in movies and TV shows is what drives people like the Manson family to do stuff like this. Because I, if I remember correctly, that scene is just her uh, coming up with like some kind of faux explanation as to why they're doing what they're doing or like something that like the media would frame as for like giving a motive to these crimes when really they're just doing it because they're just a bunch of crazy assholes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's move. So that'll do it for our, our spoiler stuff. So if you're uh, trying to fast forward and find a point, if you're, if you're flailing through uh, and your fast forward button, this is where you can, safely jump back into the podcast episode uh so let's talk about the eternals which is uh, marvel studios upcoming superhero movie um a casting notice or casting report came out yesterday talking about uh Gemma chan who appeared in the movie captain marvel earlier this year that she is being eyed for a role in the eternals we also know that uh, barry keoghan who recently appeared on hbo's chernobyl and has appeared in movies like dunkirk and american animals he is definitely on board according to The Hollywood Reporter. But Variety says that Jimmy Chan, who played Minerva, one of the uh, Kree snipers in Captain Marvel earlier this year, is also in talks for a role in this movie. And they, the interesting thing here is that they say that more than one source has told them that her part will be a totally different role from Minerva. And if that's true, that would be one of the, the very rare times that Marvel Studios would cast the same actress or actor in to play multiple roles basically uh, across the marvel cinematic universe and we list all of the other instances where that's happened in this article none of them are are really as direct as this would be a lot of them are are sort of like voice work or um performance capture or uh they involve the the tv side of things as well and up until this point the Marvel Studios stuff has been largely separate from the TV stuff. Um, so I'm just, I wanted to, to sort of throw this out there to you guys. Like, do you, do you think that this is, uh, I mean, I feel like Variety wouldn't put it in there if they had, you know, if they, if, if it was just um, nonsense. So the idea that multiple people are suggesting this to them, um, do you think that this, uh, this is going to be sort of Marvel breaking new ground in a way? Um, Brad, you cover the superhero stuff. What do you think about this? Yeah, I don't know. It's I think it's maybe more likely that some wires got crossed or something like that because it, it would seem rather strange to cast somebody like that in that Captain Marvel role only to have her play a different character in uh, another cosmic Marvel movie. But then again, it's not as if the character of Minerva was particularly memorable or uh, important to the proceedings. She was more so just kind of a 
a background character on Jude Law's, uh, you know, team. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and plus she's also hidden under a lot of, uh, you know, blue makeup and whatnot. So maybe it's not too hard to have her be in a new role and people will not realize that it's her unless they actually know who Gemma Chan is. So I don't know. It could go either way, but I, I feel like it would make more sense for her to play the same character from Captain Marvel. Yeah. Well, this movie has a, a fantastic cast, even if uh, Gemma Chan ends up not being in it, and, and she'll only add to the, the greatness of it if, she, if that deal does actually go through. So we'll keep you posted on that, um, and you can read more about all of that at the article in the show notes. Uh, let's move on to an Event Horizon TV show. Um, Brad, who is supposed to be bringing this show to us? Yeah, so uh, Amazon and Paramount are developing a TV series adaptation of the horror sci-fi movie Event Horizon. The original movie was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, but this TV series uh, will be in the hands of Adam Wingard, uh, who most recently directed Godzilla vs. Kong, uh, but is probably better known at this point for being at the helm of thrillers and horror movies like The Guest, You're Next, and the reboot-slash-sequel Blair Witch. Uh, he'll be executive producing and directing the series, and uh, it's not clear if this was something that will uh, be something that picks up maybe uh, after the events of the first movie and kind of continue that story, or if it will just retell that story and expand upon the idea of it. Uh, it's a pretty basic sci-fi premise. Uh, if you've never seen the original Event Horizon, it focuses on uh, a crew that ventures into a spacecraft called the Event Horizon that had v- vanished years earlier on a mission using a uh, this sort of gravity engine that allows it to create artificial black holes so it can travel to distant points uh, across the vastness of space. But when Event Horizon comes back from one of these trips after creating an artificial black hole, there's some mysterious entity, force, creature, what have you on it that starts picking off the crew one by one. Um, so there, it's a pretty basic premise. It's in a way, it's kind of like an alien ripoff. There's a little bit more, I guess, uh, gruesome deaths and some things that are a little bit more devilish in nature, uh, almost like some kind of, uh, you know, sci-fi satanistic, um, situation. But there are several ways that this movie could still be expanded because if we're talking about something like, uh, going through black holes and, we don't know where this entity comes from, so maybe there's another dimension out there, and the crew could easily be exploring it, and that and that kind of thing. So there, there are some paths that this could go on in order to expand this uh, premise into an entire series, but we're not necessarily sure how they're approaching that premise just yet. Jacob, I feel like this Event Horizon, a show, or a, a movie directed by Paul W.S. W. S. Anderson, and Adam Wingard turning this into a TV series is sort of like. This is all seems very much in your wheelhouse. What do you what do you think about this? Oh, it is, this is my wheelhouse. Uh, Event Horizon rules, and I think Brad's underselling this movie a lot because this is the one Paul Dips Anderson movie that I recommend wholeheartedly without reservations. And I say this to somebody who likes a number of his often terrible movies because uh, Brad buried the lead. This is a movie about a spaceship that uses a black hole to literally go to hell. It goes to hell and comes back possessed by hell. And I love the collision of religious horror and sci-fi. And the movie saves this, you know, for the back half. You don't know at first that, that there's religious horror lurking in, in space. That's why I didn't say it. <laughs> and, you know what? I'm saying it right here because that's the hook. That's why people, it's, it's not an alien ripoff. It's Hellraiser in space and, and in a good way. And I'm saying Fair it enough. because if you have not seen Event Horizon yet, because you did not know that, and now you know that, and now you want to see it. Guaranteed. And you know what? Bring on a TV show because the movie 
opened up a can of worms uh, that I want to see dug through until we have blood on our hands. I want to see, I want to see the Exorcist in space. I want to see Hellraiser in space. I want to see all kinds of satanic craziness in spaceships. It's all I want. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I like Event Horizon. I, I especially I like Sam Neill in it. Um, but it's I think it's still an, a bit of an alien ripoff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's move on to our, our next story, and that is uh, that the third Walking Dead show is going to be directed by Kong Skull Island director Jordan Vote roberts um, We talked a little bit about this third Walking Dead show, I think, around the time of Comic-Con. Uh, Jacob, you attended a Walking Dead panel there. Why don't you give us just, like, the, the loose basics on what this uh, third Walking Dead show is supposed to be about? Yeah, at Comic-Con, they gave out some loose story details, essentially that this is a show set in a community that has sprouted up in the aftermath of the zombie apocalypse. These are people who have grown up and have grown accustomed to life in the in the end of the world. It's not it's not about, you know, people from our world and our time trying to survive, but people who have grown to only know this world. And it follows a group of young people who are in a walled community, who know safety, who know security, who venture beyond the walls to, you know, seek their fortunes, more or less. And that's pretty much all we know plot-wise, even though some people join the cast and you have a teaser trailer with uh, only concept art out there. Uh, but it's, as somebody who gave up on the Walking Dead TV shows a long time ago, this is a very unique take because it really does suggest that life goes on. Rather than the world ending, humans find a way to adapt. And, you know, the world just becomes what it is. Zombies become, you know, just another daily hazard as opposed to the thing that you're that's ending your entire existence. And I like Jordan Vogue Roberts. I'm not sure if this is enough to get me on board to watch it, but I do think that if they're going to keep making Walking Dead shows, at least it's not another the world's ending and we're on the run type premise. It's completely different. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, I, I think he's a good fit for this. I think he's got this a really good mixture of, like, working in heightened genre-type settings and also dealing with, like, uh, actually compelling character drama stuff. And I'm not really sure about the writers of this. Uh, I know that uh, Matt Negrete, who was uh, wor- who's worked on the original Walking Dead show, he's the writer-producer on that, is going to be the showrunner here. Um, Brad, uh, Jacob was just talking about, you know, the original series and even Fear the Walking Dead not exactly uh, much must-watch TV these days, but I know that you like this director a lot. Is this going to be... Is the combination of Jordan Vote roberts and the different concept behind this show going to be enough to get you to tune in? Uh, you know, I'm, I might give it a chance. Uh, yeah, I might, you know, put it on my DVR and watch the first couple episodes and see if it hooks me. Uh, I respect Jordan enough to do that, and I like what he brings to the table as a filmmaker. But I, I do feel myself feeling uh, being very exhausted by The Walking Dead. The show has been on for, what, what 10 years now? And Fear the Walking Dead, uh, you know, is just... Yeah, I, they've done some different things, but it's still more of the same to me. And I just... I feel like uh, zombies now, we can just... we can, Unless there's something completely new to bring to the table, we can maybe, like, take a break for a little bit and let them come back around at a different time. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, you can read more about that show at the link in the show notes. Uh, and then our last news story involves uh, a Fast and Furious actress who seems to be going head-to-head with Chris Morgan, who, like I said, you'll you'll hear my interview with him uh, momentarily. But before we get to that, I just thought this was going to be an interesting thing to, uh, to bring up here. Michelle Rodriguez, who plays Letty in the Fast and Furious movies, has uh, basically come out on Twitter and 
tried to dunk on Chris Morgan for lack of a better word. Like she, she uh, released a, or, or uh, sent out a tweet uh, yesterday, last night saying, I've been around since the beginning, way before Chris Morgan came along. And he has absolutely nothing to do with where this narrative is or where it's going. FYI. And the narrative that she's referring to is the justice for Han narrative. And we've talked about that probably a lot on this podcast, but just very briefly by way of, of recap, uh, Sung Kang's character Han was killed off in uh, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, the same movie that he was introduced in, but he was, that timeline for the franchise was altered so Han could appear in the next three movies before the storyline finally revealed at the end of Fast and Furious 6 that Jason Statham's character, Deckard Shaw, was the one who was responsible for Han's death. And Shaw basically got welcomed into the Fast and Furious family, quote-unquote, with open arms, even though he murdered one of the, the main crew members. And fans have been sort of upset about that because loyalty is like a huge thing in the Fast and, Fur- Fast and Furious world. So this whole Justice for Han movement sort of sprouted out of that, hoping that that Shaw, uh, Statham's character, will one day basically like face the consequences for his crime. So um, Michelle Rodriguez basically saying Chris Morgan, the guy who's written every single Fast and Furious movie since Tokyo Drift, has absolutely nothing to do with where this narrative is or where it's going, is uh, is an interesting statement. Um, Jacob, I know you care a lot about this really dumb franchise, almost probably as much as I do. What do you make of, of uh, Rodriguez's statement here? What I make of this is that I don't want to say she's wrong because I don't know what's going on on this increasingly dramatic franchise where everybody has a bone to pick with somebody. But when you have a screenwriter who's written three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and Hobbs and Shaw, you have, you have a lot of... He, Chris Morgan is the one who transformed Fast and Furious into what it is now, along with Justin Lin. So to say he has nothing to do with this, say he's not the architect of you know this world as we know it, is patently incorrect. Uh, but I do think that she, maybe she's referring to the fact that Fast and Furious 9, which is filming now, and is not written by Morgan, the first in quite some time to not be written by him, maybe she's referring to that movie by itself in a vacuum. But I do think it's a weirdly dismissive tweet for somebody who has added more to this series than she ever has. But I don't, also don't want to like throw her down the stairs because I like Michelle Rodriguez just fine. But I also feel like this is a tweet from somebody who doesn't know how her own movies are being made. <laughs> um, Brad, you were sort of sharing some thoughts about uh, your interpretation of Rodriguez's comments with us in the, the Slack channel earlier. What do you think she might be getting at here? If anything, I feel like maybe her there's probably a, a lack of knowledge here because her saying that Chris Morgan doesn't have any idea of what the narrative about this. I, I think along the lines of what Jacob says, to me indicates that maybe what's going to happen with Han and the larger picture of the Fast and Furious franchise will likely play out in Hobbs and Shaw, which Chris Morgan is is very much involved in. And if anything, I think Michelle Rodriguez is. Um, I guess arrogance about this topic comes from the fact that she's so close with Vin Diesel and Vin Diesel is very much uh, protective and has a a sense of ownership over the Fast and Furious franchise that maybe makes her think that like certain decisions probably aren't going to be made without Vin Diesel's approval and that she knows anything and everything that's going on with the franchise. Um, But at the end of the day, she's an actress playing a role and she's one who was, you know, uh, even dead for a little while. So there's, you know, anything can happen in the Fast and the Furious franchise. And I feel like ultimately what happens with Han will have some kind of resolution 
with Shaw, and I wouldn't be surprised if we end up seeing Han and Shaw teaming up at some point, maybe in a Hobbs and Shaw sequel. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm My only pushback to that would be that I feel like the uh, Han maybe coming back in Fast 9 or Fast 10, like these core movies, just to sort of, um, I guess, give the, the conclusion and the, the closure to the people who have been with the franchise you know, since the beginning, instead of, um, I guess, pawning off the Justice for Han thing in like a Hobbs and Shaw 2, for example. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, I agree with uh, almost everything else that you just said. So uh, let's just go ahead and play my interview with Chris Morgan. So I, I spoke with him on the phone about uh, all sorts of stuff. Vin Diesel, I mentioned, um, I talked to him about the the scenes that Dwayne Johnson and, and Jason Statham wanted to see in the Hobbs and Shaw script. This movie, or this uh, interview is mostly about Hobbs and Shaw. Um, it doesn't really get into spoilers or anything. So if you haven't caught up with the movie yet, you don't really have to have to worry about, um, you know, tuning out. You can listen to this and, and probably enjoy it. Uh, and this is the first, Hobbs and Shaw is the first movie that he has co-written in the Fast and Furious franchise. So uh, I talked to him about his relationship with Drew Pierce, the guy who wrote Iron Man 3 and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, or at least he has co-writing credits on those, about how um, Morgan and Pierce worked together as writers. So here is my interview with Chris Morgan. So when I spoke with you for The Fate of the Furious, we were talking about how Vin Diesel is such a big collaborator of yours and is a key part of the development process for these Fast and Furious movies, but he did not act in or produce Hobbs and Shaw, so I'm just wondering if he was involved in any of the story conversations uh, about this spinoff. No, this one was, um, you know, I think they were so focused on Nine, which was developing at the same time, that they're, you know, kind of had their hands full with that and we had our hands full with this and you know fortunately i have an excellent collaborator in uh, dwayne johnson as well mm-hmm. uh so um you know when we when we decide to set out uh, let me just back it up a little bit you know when we um when we did fast eight uh you remember the sequence in the prison and we played dwayne and jason against each other and then they just they went to town on each other just yeah. throwing insults yeah that's the moment that like we knew and the studio knew specifically that if we ever wanted to expand the universe it's probably with those two guys they just had a great engine you know and that they they respect each other but man they hate each other you know uh the characters that is Mm -hmm. um and so uh you know we kind of just set out uh to you know one of the things about the fast films is that they're always very very large ensemble pieces which is awesome um but it doesn't give you a whole lot of time to kind of dig down into characters about where they come from what are the things that haunt them um, you know, what are, the, what are the things that ground them and make them, you know, real sorts of people, you know, parental mm-hmm. troubles and, and you know, sibling rivalry and all that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, it, when we sat in to do this, we really just decided to dig in on, you know, Hobbs. Where does Hobbs come from? Who are his family? Where does uh, Shaw come from? You know, what are his issues with his family? Who are the new characters we haven't met yet? Mm-hmm. Uh, and just um, you know, we got to we got to just kind of dream and play and have fun with these characters that we've been living with for a lot of years, uh, and then you know, kind of make it personal as well. Specifically speaking for Dwayne, just to be able to bring his you know his Samoan heritage into the into the film and into such a big global um, kind of picture is uh, was really fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm curious about writing a script for you know big alpha actors like Johnson and Statham. What sort of stipulations did you get from them or their people when writing this movie? Like, did they want equal screen time? Was there anything like that where you sort of had to like write around when crafting this screenplay? No, not really. I mean, you naturally, Hobbs and Shaw, 
you naturally want to, you know, balance that screen time just from a story sense uh, anyway. But no, nobody's uh, nobody's counting lines or anything like that. It's, uh, it's really just, uh, you know, it's just two characters that they both love to play. And then, again, they love to kind of get over on each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just, it's just, you know, knowing that we're going to feed into that with action sequences and fights and and some personal, you know, the, the things that they ask for generally are, you know, um, can we, you know, can we have a, a, a touching moment, you know, with my daughter? Can we dig into my family history? Those are the things they want to safeguard and look. They know that we got them handled on all the action front. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to me, this movie is essentially like a modern-day remake of Tango and Cash. Was that film a touchstone <laughs> for you when you set out to write this? It is. I love Tango and Cash. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so did you, did you like, study uh, that? for Sundance and Lethal Weapon and 48 Hours. Like, yeah, all of those are, are touchstones. Did you, like, study Tango and Cash, like, structurally to, <laughs> to figure out? When I was younger, yeah. in the theater a bunch of times, for sure. <laughs> Um, how did you approach this from a writing standpoint? Because as the first spinoff of this franchise, how important was it to really like step out into new territory while at the same time trying to retain a sense that this is an adventure that's taking place in a world that we already know? Yeah, it's a balancing act, right? Like, um, it's Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. So you want to make sure that the people who love Fast and Furious understand that this does take place in the universe of Fast, in our timeline, that repercussions from, you know, this adventure will kind of ring out uh, down the road through through Fast. And, um, you know, so you want to... Part of the reason the studio, you know, really wanted me... Um, kind of on and producing and writing and all that is to to guarantee that, that, that fast feel, that fast tone. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also to lend it, um, you know, its own flavor as well. So you recognize, you know, it's um, there's something slightly different and special in these spinoffs. Um, and, you know, largely it's the fact that, A, we get to dig a little deeper on our characters and their backgrounds, but B, the comedy for the, for this particular film, um, there's a little bit more comedy just because of the energy between Dwayne and Jason, you know, and specifically Hobbs and Shaw, but also Dwayne and J- Jason, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think it's just, you know, it's just as a fan of Fast and someone who's been involved for a while, it's, you know, we just want to make sure that, you know, we are delivering on the same Fast level in terms of the heart, the action, kind of the you know, accepting inclusiveness, um, globetrotting, and then, you know, on top of that, we get uh, a little bit of, um, you know, David Leach came in and, you know, he just had done Deadpool 2 and A Time of Blonde, and, you know, his sense is um, very pop and very fun. Like, mm-hmm. he's a really funny guy. Um, so he just really got to, you know, kind of plus all those yeah, this is the first time you have a co-writing credit on one of these movies. So I'm, I'm wondering what the writing relationship was like between you and Drew Pierce. Did you guys write together, or did he come on board and do a separate pass later? No, it's great. We were doing it together. So basically, what happened was, you know, um, as we were getting into right, right at production, you know, I'm producing it as well as writing it, and there's a lot of, you know, we basically just needed extra hands. And David had worked with Drew uh, previously, and um, we came in and we just got along great, and we just divvied up scenes, divvied up work, and 
he'd do a pass and then I'd come over and vice versa and um, on top of the benefit of that as well is that uh, he's actually from the UK so he got to bring some really fun dialogue for the Shaw family that mm. felt a little more authentic you know cool cool um, this I mean you mentioned the, the sort of uh, globetrotting action earlier this franchise has been compared to the Bond movies in terms of the scope before but a secret organization that wants to commit genocide in order to replace human weaknesses with mechanical perfection is by far the most Bond villain plot this franchise has ever seen so what was the thinking behind going that far with the Etion uh, organization? Well, I think it is, uh, in terms of uh, the bond level of it, um, the reason, I'll, I'll start from the beginning. Uh, you know, we have Hobbs and Shaw, who are like these alpha tough guys, and we've seen them clear a room of bad guys, and they're not daunted by anything. We needed something to actually stand in their way, be so formidable, to beat them down so badly that these two guys who definitely do not want to work together, and though they respect each other, they probably hate each other. The only way for them to possibly even try to solve the problem of the movie is to um, work together to beat uh, Brixton, our Idris Elba in our in our film, and um, the reason for the um, kind of genre shift a little bit, um, and we've done it before. Also, we did it on uh, you know Fast Five, kind of going into uh, the heist genre. Um, I was just doing a bunch of research on you know super soldiers and DARPA and future military tech and what they're working on, where they think they're going to get, and we just decided to give some of those attributes to. Um, Brixton to make him incredibly formidable. Uh, and also, there's a little bit of a theme in there. It's like, you know, um, kind of heart versus tech, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, kind of an old school sort of thing. And, you know, and the, you know, it turns out that he works for an organization and they're up to sort of nefarious things. We don't even know for sure exactly all the stuff that they're up to in terms of the audience yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it just seemed like it was, it was fun. It is a footstep into a slightly different genre, but not too far. And then it's it's five minutes in the future in terms of the the actual tech that Brixton is wielding, like the autonomous uh, bike mm-hmm. um, that he has. Yeah. And speaking of old school, I have to ask you about the character of Han. He is not mentioned in yeah. this movie, but uh, last time we spoke, you said that you'd been thinking a lot about that character. And if Han were to come back in a future Fast movie, would it have to be in flashback form, or would you entertain the idea that he somehow escaped that explosion in Tokyo? Okay, so there's a lot of questions in there. Let me let me start with, um, there's a line in this movie uh, from Shaw, right before the ancient weapons battle in Samoa, where he's talking to Hattie and he says, um, you know, there's things that I've done and there's things that I have to commend for. That specifically, he is referring to Han there. Okay. Um, in, in terms of Han, that's, that's why I wrote it that way. In terms of Han, um, I think... Han and Shaw. Shaw is going to have one of the greatest arcs of the Fast franchise. It is something that is um, that we've been talking so long and so much about that we want to be able to devote enough time to it to make it really land. Um, but his is an arc of redemption, of you know, regret, of um, and you should just know in terms of justice for Han, nobody feels the need for that more than us, for sure. <laughs> Especially Sun Kang as a friend and a character that we altered the entire 
entire timeline of the Fast Universe yep. to preserve for three additional movies. Yep. Um, believe me, we are we are the biggest fans, uh, and uh, I want to make sure that he is uh, uh, his stuff is resolved really well. Yeah. And in terms of, and then I'm just gonna leave the other the other yeah. question in terms of uh, you know a flashback or you know bringing him back. Let's just see how that. Uh, how the story lays out. And, that, is, that is fair enough. Yeah. Um, I, I was wondering if Han's ghost haunted you as you were writing lines for Deckard Shaw, this guy who killed him and essentially got away with it. It does. I mean, honestly, it does. Like, Han is one of my favorite characters. I mean, he started the fast journey with me. I mean, in terms of the character, also Son, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he is, you know, it's been... That character has been a constant for me in something. It's one of my very favorite characters and, you know, some someone that I think about often. Nice. nice. Uh, and how to, you know, how to, um, just exactly how we lay, you know, lay out, um, you know, whatever we reveal in the future with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point in this movie, Shaw points to a Mini Cooper and he talks about a job over in Italy. Did Deckard Shaw change his name and operate as Handsome Rob from the Italia job for a while? <laughs> I'm just gonna leave that there. <laughs> I know you know what it is. I just thought, who knows? I mean, who knows? But I will say, I remember we were like kidding out uh, Deckard's lair, and uh, I, I, we're like looking at the cars. There's a lot of McLarens, all British cars, and then we're just like, oh my god, we gotta put, we have to put a Mini Cooper in there. We have to. And they're like, really? I don't know. Should we? I'm like, yes, we must. We must. So, thank you for noticing that. Yeah. Uh, you know. It, I, I believe uh, Fast 9 is the first Fast movie that you're not writing since Tokyo Drift. How do you feel about that? Well, I think, you know, when we were looking to do the spin-off and 9, and they both started kind of developing at the same time, it was a big priority for the studio, because, you know, look, it's a big gamble, you know, um, for the audience and for the studio and, you know, uh, to see, you know, if how they'll respond to this spinoff. Can we deliver fast-level entertainment, you know, in the spinoff that's still in our fast universe and our fast world? So they just wanted to make sure that every single step of the way that, you know, someone who was the... I mean, I don't even know what to say. They wanted me there, you know, all the... Just to guarantee that, you know, everything feels like fast, but has a slightly different flavor, so you understand it's a spinoff, but... Is the heart there? You know, is the importance of um, more? You know, every character's moral code and the relationship they have to their family, whatever version family that may be for them. Mm-hmm. Um, does the action feel lateral thinking and big enough? Yeah. You know, um, th- that kind of stuff. So it was really, you know, as the producer and as the writers, really a, a full-time job. And you know, I think the easiest part was just when I wrote the original script. And then got the ball going, and then once everything started coming together, and you know that's when that's when we basically right before shooting, you know, um, we just wanted to guarantee everything, and we um, you know all hands on deck. That's actually when we brought in uh, Drew to help out. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you going to write Fast Ten? Uh, we'll have to see. Okay, all right. I I would, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And then finally, I think I have time for maybe one more question. Um, What is the latest on Crime of the Century? We're really looking forward to that one. It's the last film. Oh, my God. You and me both. Uh, 
works. I would just say, just just be patient. Just yeah. be patient. And that's such an amazing project. Yeah, we, we know that it's a time travel heist film. Can you tell me what's being heisted? Like, what's the score that the protagonists are going after? You know what? I'm going to leave that to Dan since it's so personal for him. Okay. Uh, I don't want to reveal that for him. I'll, I'll, I'll give him the, uh, the, the choice on that. Fair enough. All right, well, thanks very much for your time, Chris. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. I totally appreciate it. All right. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. All right. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Uh, Before we go... I know I did listening to it in real time right here. (laughs) Certainly not edited in at all. Is that how podcasts work? I especially like the part where you insert best part of the interview here. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Uh, I like the part where we talk about the cars and the punching. (laughs) All right, I think, yeah, that, that's a uh, that's about the safest statement you could have made there, Jacob. I appreciate it. Uh, all right, so before we wrap up, where can people find more of your work online, uh, Jacob? Let's start with you. Uh, I am running the ship at slashum.com every single day, and I'm on Twitter where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. Brad, I am rowing the ship known as the SS slash film.com. <laughs> um, and I also am on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton, and I have my own podcast. Uh, that I co-host with my friend Ben called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. And I am pushing the NOS button on SlashFilm.com whenever I can, whenever I can get away with it. And you can find me writing there. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. And you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. Speaking of which, I want to plug really quickly, I made this video about the climactic end battle of Avengers Endgame, and I'll link that in the show notes too, but uh, it's like 10 minutes long, and even if you're a big fan of, of uh, all the Marvel Studios stuff, and you've read all these interviews with the Russos and the uh, you know Marcus and McFeely, the writers of Avengers Endgame, I feel like there's some stuff in there that you may not know, so um, I would encourage everybody to watch that, share it if you can, uh, so yeah, any, anyway, just a, a quick plug there. Uh, you can subscribe to this show, Slash Film Daily, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It helps us out a lot. Tell your friends, spread the word about the show. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>